holiness of God. The holiness of God. That is the central theme of the book of Leviticus. Holy or holiness is not a word that we use often in our everyday vocabulary, right? We don't go around talking about things as holy or things as set apart. And I couldn't really think of a use in our everyday vocabulary as a culture where we use that word. We may talk about something being pure or something being really, really clean. Like maybe a a hospital surgery room or maybe like um, a pure mountain spring of water. Uh, I drank uh, water from a mountain spring when me and Jason were up at his his, uh, uncle's cabin and it was straight from the spring. It was pure spring water. Maybe we talk about pure or clean, but we don't talk about holiness in the moral realm too much as a culture. And even as a church, I'm talking about the church at large, as a Christian culture, we probably don't give holiness as much credit as we should. Or we don't give it much of our attention as we should. We might think about relative holiness, saying, for example, "Mm, I think I'm better than this person over here. Or compared to this person in my family, or this person in my youth group, or this person in my church, I think I might be doing pretty well. So we might talk about it that way. Or we might just kind of talk about it as a church of, these are the things that you do, and these are the things that you don't do. And how are you doing in that? I think in large part, it's because that we're used to sin. We kind of become familiar with it. We say that we are sinners and we say that we, we, we do it all the time. We can't be perfect. And in a sense, sin becomes normal to us. It becomes familiar. We become okay with it. But when it comes to the Scriptures, holiness is a serious topic. And it takes really center stage all over the Scriptures, not just in one book, like the book of Leviticus. And so as we study Leviticus this morning, we're going to see this one overarching point if you're taking notes. As God's covenant people, we are to be holy as He is holy. But since we can't do that on our own, we need someone to take our punishment and do it for us. We need a substitute. We need a substitute. So first, I want to look at one of the prominent themes in the book of Leviticus. What God wants to teach us this morning is, first of all, the worship of our holy God. The worship of our holy God. See, Leviticus, it picks up where Exodus left off. At the end of the book of Exodus, the tabernacle has just been built, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It would be like God sitting in the same room as you. It was an awesome and yet terrifying event for the people of God. The presence of God filling the tabernacle. And then Leviticus comes along, and Leviticus is God's revelation to Moses about what his people are to believe, what they are to think, how are they to act, what are they to be like as a people separate from him. One of which was how they were to worship the God of the universe. How they were to worship the God of the universe. See, almost every single page in Leviticus is God speaking. It's a living moment of God teaching man and then man teaching other man. As one commentator puts it, it is God is the direct speaker in almost every page. His gracious words are recorded in the form wherein they were uttered. 
This consideration cannot fail to send us to the study of it with singular interest and attention. So one of the overarching messages of the book of Leviticus is that God cares about how he is worshipped. He cares deeply about how he is worshipped. And we're not just talking about on Sundays when we come to church or on Wednesday nights when we do Bible study and pioneer clubs, but all of life. One of my seminary professors said that the central question asked in the book of Leviticus is, how will God be worshipped? And when he outlined the book, he said that there were six directories or manuals on worship. You'll see in the picture some of them, the sacrifices of Israel, the sacrifices from the priest, the code of cleanliness for those coming to worship, the manual for the high priest on the Day of Atonement that we'll look at in a few minutes. There's also a general code of holiness. And lastly, kind of a manual for the funding of the sanctuary. So all throughout this book, God tells us how he is to be worshipped through exhaustive laws. See, Leviticus is all almost laws, legislative, as as some have said. But let's see this kind of in one sample passage. Turn to uh, Leviticus 10, uh, verses 1 through 3. We're going to talk about Aaron, who was the high priest, and two of his sons, Nadab and Abihu. So chapter 10, it says this, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. See, Aaron had a specific job to do. Him and his sons had a specific job to do in the tabernacle. The weighty task of attending to the sacrifices that had to be offered again and again and again. They had other priestly duties as well. But it was a very important job. It was very important because in that tabernacle is where the presence of God dwelt. It was the priest's job mainly to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people and the sins of themselves. But what we see is that God doesn't like things done in a haphazard way. He's not okay with things being done kind of in a, in a willy-nilly way. He has a certain way that he wants them to be done. And it's a detailed way, and he has a purpose for each and every detail, even if we don't understand it, or even if they didn't understand it. We see here in verse 1 that that two sons offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. This reminded me, I was over uh, trying to go fishing the other day down near Harrah's. And then one of the parking lots where I wanted to park, which was right in front of the fishing spot, said no unauthorized parking. A.K.A. it meant if you park here, you will get towed. Your car will be gone. Same thing. Similarly, Aaron's son, they failed to listen to God's instructions about how he is to be worshipped. 
God gave certain commands. God gave certain instructions to Aaron and to his sons about how he is to be worshipped. And what did they do? They ignored them. They ignored them. And the result was their own death. The result was their death. This is how serious disobedience is to God. This is how serious the worship of God is. So I want to ask you a question. How do you come into the worship of God? You can think about it on Sunday mornings, or you think about it on Wednesday nights, or every day of the week like we talked about it, but how do you come into the presence of God worshiping? Is there a sense of awe and reverence? As we have seen, we can't come into His presence haphazardly or in a way that He doesn't want to be worshipped. See, contrary to the the once popular t-shirt slogan, God is not our homeboy. Okay? He is Yahweh. He is the living God. He is the God who made us, who takes care of us. He brought us into this world, and He will take us out of this world. He is absolutely holy, absolutely righteous, and there is none like Him. So yes, we come into His presence joyfully and intimately because of Jesus, We try to do that here as a church at New City Fellowship, but also we come into his presence respectfully and in awe of who he is, reverently. We are in his presence. You know, one of the other things that we see in the book of Leviticus is that because God is holy, we are to be what? We are to be holy. God is perfectly holy, and as His covenant people, we are to be like Him. And that's how we were designed. Think about Genesis 1, right? Man being made in the image of God. We all were made in the image of God to reflect Him, to be holy like He is holy. And this is the unmistakable central theme to this book. See, the word holy is used 92 times in the book of Leviticus. And the word sin, or any words like it, is used about a hundred times. If you were to read through the whole book or listen to it on audio, you would hear that phrase, be holy, for I am holy. You'd hear it over and over and over again. You can't miss it as you're reading through it or listening to it. See, there's a contrast that God puts before the people of God. And that is of holiness and sin. The message that God wants His people to hear, us to hear, is that you are not like the other people of the world. You are separate. You are set apart. You are distinct from the rest of the world. You are mine. Think about it this way. Think about, for example, the Navy SEALs. All the training and expectations put upon them. They go through all this training, special training and months and years of it. Uh, They adopt kind of almost an unbearable lifestyle to be the best that they possibly can be at doing what they do. They're unique. They're set apart. They pride themselves on not being like the other soldiers, not like the average uh, enlisted man. They are set apart, unique, and everything in their life and their training points to that. Remember that when God saved you, When he saved me through Jesus, our life became what? Not our own. Our life became his. We were bought with a price. 
And we became part of a family, and the head of that family is God. He defines what the family looks like. He tells us how we should live, what we should be about, what should excite us. What we do on a day-in and day-out basis. He's the head of the family. Turn to Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18, I want to show you this in the Scriptures. Verse 1 through 5, it says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Did you guys pick up on what's repeated there? I am the Lord your God. Right off the bat, what God is doing is He is telling us who He is. He is telling the people of Israel, this is who I am. I am your God. I am in a special relationship with you. And I am the head of that relationship. I am the leader of that relationship, God says. So for us, we are reminded that He is our God and we are His people. That's repeated all throughout the Scriptures. That's what a covenant relationship is all about. He is our God and we are His people. And that is a beautiful thing. But also, notice what He says. God says, I don't care what the other people around you are doing. You follow me. You follow me. I don't care what the other people are doing. Keep your eyes on me. For the parents in the room, I want you to think about this for a moment. Now, thankfully, I haven't got too much of this yet, but your child comes and says to you, so-and-so is doing something, so therefore what? I can do it, right? So-and-so is wearing these clothes, or so-and-so is staying out to this time of the night, and so-and-so is doing this, and so, Dad, I can do this, right? And what's the parent's response? It doesn't matter what so-and-so is doing. I'm your father. I will tell you what to do. I will tell you what's good for you. I will look out for you. I will help you to know God's will. Because I am your parent. The same thing here is happening in our context. God is saying, don't worry about the Egyptians, where you came from, and where you're going to the Canaanites. Don't worry about them either. You keep your eyes on me. Focus right here. Focus right here on me. Today's version may be something like this. I don't care what the Republicans or the Democrats do or what Hollywood or the popular music artist does or what higher education believes and puts forth to you as important. You follow me. You follow God. So I want to ask the question for us, where are our our eyes focused? Who are our Egyptians or Canaanites? Who are the ones that we are tempted to look at and to follow instead of following God and His commands? His laws, and His statutes. God encourages us this morning to keep our eyes fixed upon Him and Him alone. 
Listen to the uh, New Testament equivalent of this. John 14, 15 says this, Jesus talking. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And these commandments aren't burdensome. True freedom is found in living in God's ways. It's not like God's trying to hold back and to say, look, I don't want you to have any fun. He's saying, do these because these are good. You live in these ways and you will, be, you will be spared from so much hurt, so much pain, so much sorrow that sin brings. Now you may be asking, what are some of these commandments or laws given in the book of Leviticus? And I have to say, as I, as I read through the book of Leviticus, it gets kind of tiring in a way. All these laws about things that seem so foreign to us, you know, some of these pictures talking about all the various sacrifices, ritualistic ones, or, or ones for the priests, the purity ones. But let me read a few off for us so that we know what are some of the things he's talking about. Here's one for peace offerings. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer a food offering to the Lord. Uh, to the Lord, it's fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail, cut off close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and then the long lobe of the liver, then he shall remove with the kidneys, and the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. I don't, I don't mean to be irreverent, but it kind of sounds like a restaurant, you know, like a butcher, someone chopping up something. But this is God's instructions to them. Laws about guilt offerings, for example. If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. And one more. What about dietary restrictions? We might hear about that or have heard about that before. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or a part of the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud and does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And it keeps going. This is what you're to eat, and this is what you're not to eat. I have to pause here because one of the things that my seminary professor told us that really stuck out to me was this, that when they sat down, the people of Israel, to eat, they knew that they were different. When they sat down even to eat, they knew they were different. In everything that they did, they were to know that they were set apart. See, as we go through these laws, we would see again that God doesn't do things haphazardly, but He has a reason, and He is showing them that they are set apart and distinct from the other peoples of the earth. Even when they sat down to eat. And this goes on for 27 chapters in the book of Leviticus. And these laws are kind of the how of the command to be holy as God is holy. Now, as a side note, some of you guys may be asking, well, we don't, we don't do that today. Why don't we do that today? Well, on this side of the cross, we realize 
that many of these laws, namely the ceremonial laws and the civil laws, have been abolished. We don't follow them anymore because they've been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so I, I, as your pastor, don't sit here in the middle of the day making sacrifices for you. No, I'm not spreading blood over this sanctuary. And there's a reason for that. We'll get to that in a minute. But as New Covenant Christians, we still have the call to pursue holiness as God is holy. See, we're not let off the hook here. Some of you may say, or some of us may say, well, if it's not for us anymore, then I guess we don't have to do it, right? We don't have to be holy as God is holy. Well, we could sit here for hours upon hours and look, for example, all throughout the New Testament, how God has called His people, us, to be set apart, to be holy, not to have a laxical, daisical attitude towards sin, but in everything that we do to strive to be like Him. So we're not off the hook. Holiness matters. Well, at this point in the sermon, I want to ask if anybody's tired. Hopefully not by my sermon, but tired by this, this burden of the law. Burden of these exhaustive laws. I think it's part of God's intention throughout the book of Leviticus. See, sometimes when it comes to the law of God, we talk about it in two ways, or two uses, okay? And I want to share that real briefly with you because I think it's important our study of Leviticus. The first one is this. The second use of the law means basically this, that the law is there in the Bible to show us that we can't do it. It's to show us that we can never live up to this standard of holiness. And it drives us to Jesus. It drives us to the cross and what he did. But there's also another use. The third use of the law is this, that it is to be a guide unto holiness for believers. It's to be a guide unto holiness for people like you and me. That by God's grace and through the help of the Holy Spirit, we are becoming more and more each day like Jesus. We look like him. And so we have these two uses of the law, and it's important for us to see that as we study the book of Leviticus. But I still think you have to admit, especially if you sit uh, down after this and work your way through the whole book of Leviticus, you'll start to feel this weight and this burden. And inevitably, you're going to say, I can't do this. It's impossible. I can't keep this up. Is there any hope for me? Where is forgiveness in this book of Leviticus? Where is there grace? I mean, aren't those things that we talk about as Christians all the time? Where is that in the book of Leviticus? Well, with that in mind, we're going to turn to our last part of Leviticus that we'll study today, Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 talks about the Day of Atonement. And we're going to see how this Day of Atonement points to or anticipates the Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross of Calvary for sinners like you and me. So as you're turning there, uh, Leviticus 16, I'm going to read out just verse 34. It says this, And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in a year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now again, 
Words like sacrifice or atonement aren't words that we use too much in our everyday vocabulary, kind of in our lives. You know, we may not really hear about them at school when we go there or home. And really, come out outside of the ideas or outside of the sports of like fishing and hunting, we're not talking about killing animals too much, let alone sacrificing an animal in our place because of something that we did wrong. And it may seem cruel or unusual or just kind of grotesque as we think about this idea of a sacrifice, a sacrificial system throughout the Old Testament. Maybe you're thinking, why don't we just take the punishment for our own sin? Or maybe that's something those in the culture would say. But God had a very specific point and very specific purpose for this sacrificial system in the Old Covenant. Let me read this quote to you as, as uh, one pastor explains it. A number of images are used to describe atonement in the Old Testament, but the most prominent image God used to teach the people about atonement was sacrifice. Sinners could seek to restore their relationship with God through sacrifice. And further down he continues, Specifically, God required the animals used as offerings to be without defect, to be costly, and to be voluntary by the person bringing the sacrifice. The life of the unblemished animal victim, symbolized by its blood, would then be given in exchange for the life of the guilty human worshiper. And so one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, for the people of Israel, there would be a special sacrifice, multiple sacrifices, so that the people of God could be cleansed, could be cleaned from all of their mistakes, all of their sin, every way that they broke God's commands. It says this in verse 30, For on this day uh, shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all of your sins. Now, we don't have time to work through all the detail of what happened on that Day of Atonement. But the priest would make, have special sacrifices for themselves, would have special sacrifices for the people as a whole. There would be special um, cleansing ceremonies for the priest. And one thing that they would do is they would have two goats that would be sacrificed. The first goat would be the sacrificial goat. The one in which would take all the sins of the people of Israel and the priest would sacrifice that goat there so they could be forgiven of their sins. The other goat was the scapegoat. The scapegoat. And what happened here was God was giving a picture to the people of Israel that their sins would be spread far from them. As far as the east is from the west. That, that scapegoat that kind of symbolically took their sins it would be sent off into the wilderness, separated from the people of God, never to be seen again. The idea was that's what happens with your sin, an offering taken for you. And I want you to think about this. Think about what it would be like to be a child, a Jewish child in this day, to grow up having this constant visual before you, this constant visual of sacrifice before you time and time again. And think about what that child must have been thinking about. Something must die so that I can live. Something must die so that I can live. And that Jewish child would see that over and over and over again. 
Something must suffer and die in my place because my sin is so serious. My sin is so grotesque. My sin must be punished. So this animal must die in my place. It's where we get the idea of a substitute. Something coming in our place. You know, a substitute teacher that we have in school, right? It's not the, not the real teacher, the one that comes in on, their, on her behalf or his behalf. So God provided a way of grace so that his people would not have to take his wrath for their disobedience. He pursues them and he pursues us today, provides a substitute, something that would go and die in their place, in our place for all of our sins. But did you notice how often this happens? Once a year. And it's not just once. It keeps going and going and going. Each and every year, this sacrifice happens. Why is that? Why does this sacrifice keep going? I think Michael Lawrence uh, helps us here. He says this, It's at this point in redemptive history that the story of sacrifice stops, or at least stalls. Century follows century, and nothing changes. No new sacrifices are introduced. The old ones are endlessly repeated day after day, week after week, year after year, and therein lays the problem. They aren't getting rid of sin. In fact, they increasingly become a nauseating reminder of just how sinful the people remain. Over and over and over again, yet not taking care of the problem. Turn over one one more passage. I lied. I'm sorry. Um, Hebrews 9 and 10. Hebrews has sometimes been called the, the New Testament Leviticus. And in many ways, it explains Leviticus, kind of this side of the cross, this side of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews does a great job at paralleling and comparing the Day of Atonement with the death of Jesus in our place. And I want to point out just two um, passages for us real quick. Hebrews 9.12. Hebrews 9.12 He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. See that contrast? Jesus entered what? Once and for all. Not by the blood of bulls and goats on a special day, but His own blood shed for sinners like you and me. Securing a done deal, securing eternal redemption or salvation for people like you and me. Hebrews 10, 11-14 And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. See, the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant which was the Day of Atonement, was a big part of that, never could take away our sins. 
It was never intended to fully take away our sins. It was always intended to point to something, to a greater reality that would come in the future, to be a visible picture of what needed to be done for sinners to be restored to a right relationship with God. But it in and of itself was insufficient. It couldn't do it. And that's why Jesus had to come. Makes sense now, right? Leviticus is starting to make more sense in light of Jesus. That's why he had to come. And Jesus had to live a perfectly clean and holy life in everything that he did. Everything. Think about that for a moment. I've been meditating on it this week. The holiness of Jesus. In everything that he did. I, I was starting to be convicted over my sin, whether it was the way that I talked to somebody, or lustful thought, or being selfish, or whatever it was. And every time I would start to say, Jesus didn't do that. He was perfect in that moment. Perfect in this moment. Perfect in this situation. His perfection of his holiness is just mind-blowing. He was completely holy. He never, ever disobeyed God. Ever. In any situation. And then what did he do? He gave himself as the perfect, unblemished sacrifice. He fulfilled what Leviticus 16 is all about. See, they were using the blood of of goats, unblemished as they might have been, but it was insufficient. We needed someone to come and to take our place, to do it for us one time, not many times, not over and over and over again, each and every week as we celebrate Mass or whatever it may be. No. He did it one time. Him for us. And when he did, he sat down. It was finished. The work of redemption was accomplished. And my question for you this morning is, do you believe that good news? Have you come to grips with that good news? Have you realized how serious your sin is before a holy and righteous God? And what problem you would be in if it wasn't for Jesus. So we see in a book like Leviticus where the holiness of God and of man is bleeding through every page. And we see also all throughout the pages that a substitute is needed because we can never do that. You can never be holy enough to earn your salvation. Try it for 10 minutes and you'll realize, one minute, you'll realize that you cannot do it. You cannot be perfectly holy in your actions and in your thought. Only one person could do that and his name is Jesus. And he did that for us and became that perfect sacrifice so that we could be forgiven of our sins. So that we could be restored to the Father. We could have a right relationship with God. So the book of Leviticus is a great book for us to study. And I hope this morning, as we've just uh, cracked it open just a little bit, that, that, that God would have piqued your interest in studying the whole counsel of God's Word. Leviticus is full of rich truth and beauty of the holiness of God, the sacrifice of Jesus, and our call to be holy as He is holy. 
So I just want to leave you with two brief applications as we close. And the first one, I already, I already kind of did this, but just the, the application of repenting and believing in Jesus. Repenting of your sins, putting your faith in Jesus, that he was perfect on your behalf. And if you've done that, to praise him and to thank him each and every day that he was that perfect once and for all sacrifice for you. And he is helping you to become the person that he wants you to be day in and day out. And that leads to the second application. The theme of this book, to be holy as God is holy. Holiness is something for us as Christians that God wants us to pursue. He cares about how we think and how we act and how we live. And you know what? He doesn't leave us on our own to do that. He has given us the Holy Spirit to help us to be the people that He wants us to be. And that's good news because I know that I wouldn't last a second without Him. I, there's, no chance, there's no chance for me being holy if not for the Holy Spirit. Be holy as He is holy. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. God, I do thank you for just the chance to be able to study a book of the Old Testament. Maybe one that we sometimes neglect or sometimes I just didn't understand. It seems so foreign to us. God, I pray that this morning that you would have helped us as a congregation to be able to understand this book. And the truth of, of being holy as you are holy. That we would have got a greater glimpse of the holiness of our God. But most importantly, Lord, that we would see the holiness of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice that He was in our place, His blood, not ours, so that by faith we receive this great gift of salvation, of redemption, and we can live in a right relationship with You and and slowly, by day, by day, by the power of the Holy Spirit, becoming the people that You want us to be. God, I pray that that would be true for all of us from the youngest in our church to the oldest. I pray that would be a reality for those that we are reaching out to this week, that it would be a reality for those all across our city, that our city would care about holiness and the holiness of God, that our city would repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus. God, we believe that you can do these things. You want to do these things. And so we just beg of you that you would do this in and through us. Work in us that which is pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.